Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. Before we get to anything, I just want to say that this episode is dedicated to the memory of Catherine Wilson. Catherine was a longtime supporter and friend of Indefensive Plants, and sadly, she passed away this week. The world will miss her. She was a fantastic human being, and my time spent getting to know her was just, it was a joy. Alright, so how is everyone doing this week? Fall is finally approaching central Illinois here, and the forests are starting to look beautiful. I enjoy when the leaves start to change colors, even though it's bittersweet knowing that plants soon won't be growing. They'll be going dormant for a few dreary months. That's why I have house plants. What do I have for you this week? A very exciting topic, one that I've been waiting to uh, release to the world for a bit here. Uh, joining us again, another return podcast, is Rebecca Hilgenhoff from the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew. You will remember Rebecca from our chat on episode 86 about her journey into the world of plant propagation and what she does at Kew, but today's topic is a bit different. It's actually probably one of the most thorough treatments we've given to any plant family here on the In Defense of Plants podcast, and I'm very excited to be bringing it to you today. We are celebrating the world of passion flowers, specifically the family Passifloriaceae and all of the wonders that come with it. Rebecca is a big proponent of this group knows quite a bit about them, and has spent a lot of time growing them and finding and photographing them in the wild. If you're like me, then you're probably most familiar with passionflower vines, you know, those you'll encounter in nursery centers, or, you know, if you've ever been to Central America, for instance, you'll see them growing in uh, a plethora of habitat types. But this is a big family, quite diverse, and includes everything from the vines we're familiar with all the way up to trees. It's remarkable, and there's a lot of significance with this group, both culturally and ecologically. There's no way I can sum it up in an intro. Rebecca does a great job, and this is a fantastic conversation. I learned so much from this. And fun fact, you'll hear in the beginning, she kind of uh, explains where the whole passion flower name came from, why the, the group is referred to as the passion flower family. And if it wasn't for this conversation, I would not have picked up on a fun cultural reference that recently became apparent to me. Uh, if any of you have seen the, the movie Mother with Jennifer Lawrence and... Javier Bardem, but I noticed on the cover, or at least on the posters for the movie, there's a lot of passion flower, among other botanical references in the background, and if it wasn't, again, for my conversation with Rebecca, I never would have picked up on the symbology and the hidden meanings of uh, what was going on in that movie, so she helped me understand uh, a very weird entertainment experience. Before we get to that conversation, a few orders of business to take care of. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to give a little bit more each month, you can even get a producer credit on this show. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Alan, Arane, Sebastian, Holly, Clifton, Katharina, Shane, Amy, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, Troy, Margie, Laura, and Mark. So thank you to everyone who has given thus far. It really is going a long way. Podcasting can get a little expensive from month to month, and every little bit you donate helps. If recurring donations aren't in the ballpark for you, Head on over to indefensiveplants.com, scroll down on the right-hand side of the page, and click that donate button. You can give a one-time donation of any amount, and trust me, it goes a long way in making this podcast available to you for free each and every week. If money isn't your thing, which I completely understand, at the very least consider reviewing and subscribing to this podcast wherever you found it and downloaded it from. Now, reviews not only help me make a better podcast for you by giving me insights on what I can improve on, it also helps In Defense of Plants reach a wider audience, and the whole goal of this podcast and blog and video endeavor is to help do my little part in curing plant blindness around the globe. And what ends up happening when you give a review to the podcast is it helps the podcatcher make recommendations to people who haven't listened to it yet. So it helps it reach new listeners around the globe, and that's a great thing. All right, last order of business here is youtube.com slash plants. We have a video series. I've teamed up with local producer and filmmaker here in central Illinois, Grant Zadzak, and we've been enjoying bringing you fun little botanical adventures each week, but we have a big announcement coming up. We're releasing a longer video on an adventure we had in Appalachia. We've called it Appalachia, and it's coming out on October 20th, and the best way to stay up to date with that is head on over to youtube.com slash plants 
and hit subscribe. It was a lot of fun making that one, and it's going to be a nice change of pace from our Central Illinois-focused videos thus far, and I know a lot of you have either been to or live in or enjoy Appalachia in some regard, and it's our way of sharing with the world a little excerpt from our adventures in that region. All right, that's enough out of me. Let's head on over to my conversation with Rebecca. We're talking Passionflower family. I hope you enjoy. Rebecca Hilgenhoff, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. Hello. It's so great to have you back on. And, uh, you know, some might have heard your episode before, but for those who haven't, how about we start with like a nice brief introduction to who you are and where you're at, and then we can kind of segue into the topic of the day. Okay, so uh, I work at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew in uh, the UK, in London. And my role there is uh, Tropical Nursery Supervisor. So I'm very fortunate to work in Kew's little hidden gem in the Tropical Nursery. Fantastic. It's an amazing job, and it sounds like you've gotten promoted since the last time we talked. <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, I was uh, very fortunate. But yeah, I'm, I'm very, very glad and I'm very excited as well about uh, the future. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. It's really nice to know someone like you is in a position of power. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so last time we kind of talked general, broad uh, kind of ideas about what it's like to work in a place like you and, and plant propagation, but you have a particular passion, and I choose my words carefully because <laughs> your passion happens to be the passion flowers. Well, for me personally, one of the most beautiful um, genera in the, within the plant world, um, they not only have a really um, curious appearance to them, but equally, they have got a lot of um, interaction with the nature, with other organisms that make them rather interesting. And um, also equally, some of these are regarded as difficult to grow. And sometimes I'm keen on growing things that are a, a bit more tricky. Um, mm. So um, they're my group of plant. Nice. Yeah, and I mean, I think a lot of people that at least have seen a passion power before can understand and empathize with you why you'd be attracted to that group. But uh I mean, you know, it is kind of weird. What is passion flower? Why, why passion flower? Why was that chosen? You know, what are they? Because you know, it's easy to recognize a vine in a garden center and say, "Oh, that's a passion flower," and kind of have an idea as to what a passion flower is if you're hiking in the woods somewhere. But uh, you know, broadly speaking, what is a passion flower, and why do we even call them that? The reason why apostleflowers or passion flowers are referred to as uh, passion flowers is because of the passion of Jesus Christ. So it were the um, Spanish uh, priests that came end of the 15th, beginning of the 16th century to South America, and they adopted the unique physical structure of those plants, in particular the various um, flower parts, as a symbolism for the last days of Jesus Christ and especially the crucifixion. Hmm. So the um, pointed tip of the leaves um, were taken to represent the holy lands, uh, the tendrils represented the vips used in the flagellation of Christ. It's the ten sepals and petals that represent the uh, ten faithful apostles. The flower radiofilaments representing the crown of thorns, or also known as the uh, corona filaments. Um, the three stigmas represent the three nails, and the five anthers below those represent the five wounds. It's the ovary that represents um, the calis. And the blue-white colour of the particular species that I would have seen at the time, Passiflora carulia, uh, represents heaven and purity. So this is why they called um, passion flowers uh, flos passiones, which translates as a flower of suffering. So these days, and thanks to actually Neos in 1753, who made the first account of the first 24 species that we call them Passiflora because he adapted it from the, at the time, common name for those plants. Wow. I had no idea there were religious connotations to that, and it, it goes pretty deep. I mean, they must have really examined those flowers. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I mean, it all comes down to this really unique morphology uh, and is that something that's adopted by the whole family as in general? Or are they generally, when you see a Passiflora flower, are you getting more or less that same morphology? Or is it, you know, the ones we're familiar with and then the whole group is doing something widely different? Oh, no, there, there are um, certain morphological features that are very distinguishing for the genus Passiflora. 
So it's mainly about floral parts, but there's also uh, quite a few vegetative things that are quite distinguishing. So if you look at the uh, at the flower itself, it is the corona filament, which is a rather unusual structure, which arises from around the opening of the floral tube. And that is something very distinguishing for the genus Passiflora, but also for Passifloraceae itself. Equally, you have got a uh, reproductive structure, the so-called androgynophore, and the androgynophore has got both male and female parts um, inherent. So it's the androgynophore is a stalk on which on the top you've got the radiant five uh, anthers. Just above that, you will have the ovary, and sitting just right on the top of the ovary are the three stigmas. Equally, you've got five petals, uh, five sepals. And just below that, you've got three bracts, which is present in most species. Those can be either very minute or relatively large-sized. Uh, the reason being that these can also have nectaries, uh, and these nectaries are exafloral, exuding sugary secretion, which helps the plant in a uh-huh. way, which I'm going to talk about a bit later. Okay. If you look at the morphology of a um, passion flower. It's, we're talking about mainly climbing plants, so anything from a vine to a woody liana. But there's a few exceptions to the rules, which again, I would like to touch upon a bit later. But generally speaking, you have got uh, climbing aids, so-called tendrils. Um, these can, tendrils are generally singular, but in some cases can be also forked in the tip. They are, in fact, a modification of a um, stem, so therefore they're actually derived from just above the PTO of the leaf. Yeah. And that's something that distinguishes them from other climbing plants, such as Kugubi daisy, where the climbing modification would be a leaf, so it comes from the opposite of the leaf. Leaf-wise, um, so Passiflorus within the genus, they can be either entire, also they range from two-lobed to more likely being three, five, up to seven or even nine lobed. What? Yes. Um, wow. So with the genus Passiflora comes quite a diversity of forms, which again has got something to do with um, the interaction of them in with other organisms in the natural habitat. Wow. So far from just the vines that you see in your casual garden center, this is a big family. And as you kind of hinted at, it is a single family, right? So all things passionflower fall under the the family Passifloriaceae. And uh, where is that? I mean, like in terms of the larger angiosperm group, are they similar to or at least allied with other families that might be recognized? Or are they kind of on their own in their own little uh, corner of the, the tree? It's, it's actually quite interesting because they are in the order of Malpigialis. And um, I think I don't know any other family within that order that is anything like Passiflorese. <laughs> because you've got general uh, families such as um, Violaceae in there, Euphorbiaceae, even Raphlaceaceae is inherited in Malpigialis. Passiflorese in itself is quite unique. And really what makes them unique is the so-called introgynophore, which I've been mentioning earlier. So it's the... Um, sexual reproductive structure with both male and female organs. There are about 27 uh, genera within Passiflorese, and under the current ABG4 system, it is subdivided into three subfamilies. So we've got subfamily Passifloroidae, uh, which has got uh, Passifloraceae within it, uh, but also the second largest genus, Adenia, which is an old bird genus, um, Passiflorus mainly New World, uh, is within that. Uh, you've got some family Malisperoides, uh, which is Malisobia, and the third uh, subfamily is Turneroi, which includes, since a few years, what was known as the Turneraceae family. So you've got genera such as Turnera, Eplicaea, and Maturina within that. Wow. That's a much bigger picture than I ever, I even <laughs> realized. So that's that's pretty remarkable. So again, just the, the the introduction to this group usually starts with one type, but now you've outlined the fact that there's many, <laughs> even outside of the genus uh, Passiflora. So, you know, what what was your introduction? Because really this, this all stems from your passion for them. So who did you meet first and what really kind of started this kick for you uh, in, in this in this whole group of plants? Well, when I, when I came across passion flowers. I've been in horticulture for quite a few years and I I greatly en- enjoyed researching, growing, um, learning more about tropical, particularly neotropical genera. And it really wasn't until I was actually walking through the th- streets of where I was growing up 
that all of a sudden I saw um, one of the hardy passion flowers, which is Passiflora carulia, um, one of the very first discovered and the, the most common one really and I, I saw the blooms of it and I was just clearly amazed how something so exotic could be hardy within Germany. I mean and also at the time it was already autumn so there was no decline of the plant as we were looking really healthy and I think that was the point when uh, what I can actually say I almost fell in love with this genus. <laughs> Um, not knowing there's actually so many other exciting things about it. Um, but really, that was the first introduction of, to fashion flowers for me. And one of my very old friends, Anna, and he was at the time a mentor for me. He realized quite quickly that I was into Passiflora. And they have got well, a rather small collection, but with some very interesting species. And he just was like, all right, you like Passiflora, here we go, look after them. And so um, <laughs> I and over, overnight was made responsible for the Passiflora collection uh, within um, the Botanic Gardens in Cologne. And uh, it's been a, a very good learning curve for wow. me and also very interesting. I much appreciate his input for that. So, Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's a, a considerable amount of trust to have in someone, but it is cool that, you know, you had this moment of like, holy cow, what is that? And then, oh, I want to learn more. And then all of a sudden, here, you grow them. <laughs> that's true and also you know what actually i should probably mention another person with that because i've been uh, sometimes and probably you know that yourself you start being excited about a plant so you look a lot of things up you research things but a certain moment i was actually getting to a bit of a forced stop i didn't really learn more and i then gone off and looked into other plants and it wasn't really until I was going to study at Q and I met uh, Carlos, who you interviewed just the other day. And I was like, Carlos, have you got any Passifloras? And he was just like, yeah. Uh, and he was just showing me this amazing collection that Q already had at the time. And I was just like blown away by it. And it gave me a lot of scope to, to learn more and to interact with those plants and to perceive my passion. Oh, wow. So that's interesting. It wasn't really until you saw what they were capable of that that it really kind of stopped plateauing and then took off again. Yeah, pretty much so. I mean, there, there, there's really many things about passion flowers and I think many, many stories that come with them that should get people excited about it. For example, I mean, one of the most interesting relationships that passion flowers have within the natural world and the reason why the genus Passiflora is known to be one of the most diverse ones and particularly when it comes down to leaf shapes is the co-evolution um, or so-called co-evolution with the Holiconius butterflies or Heliconia mm. butterflies so it's a group of of butterflies and how that all works is that due to the pressure of herbivores, passion flowers over evolutionary time started to produce toxins or the leaves started to contain toxins. And these days we know they contain cyanogenic glucosides, um, alkaloids and other compounds, which are uh, chemicals that very few animals can cope with. But it said that the butterflies, um, which were choosing passiflores as their food source, uh, adapted to that and were actually able to feed the plants, even though they were showing that toxicity. And not even that, but also developed the ability of actually storing the toxins in their own body and using them in their own defense. Huh. I had no idea. <laughs> but within that, it didn't really stop. Because now, as you can imagine, plants are a bit more under pressure or passiflores were more under pressure because all of a sudden you had that organism and or this group of organisms that was capable of uh, still munching on it. And so they derived or they developed very different techniques in order to overcome that feeding pressure from the Soliconia butterflies. For example, um, leaf diversity or leaf shape diversity. So it is known that um, Bartelicornis butterflies can, for example, feed on young leaves, but the toxicity and or also the toughness of more mature leaves is um, too high, so they can't really feed on them. So they go through heteroplastic changes within the leaf shape. So they have a different leaf shape when they're young, and all of a sudden, when they can become bigger, they have a completely different leaf shape, which doesn't look nothing like the young one. 
often wow. even mimicking plants from the environment, such as cucurbitaceae, because they're not the food source for the butterfly. There are examples that, or people say that some leaf shapes, in particular those of the more lobed kinds, represent other butterflies when they're in the wind. So the, the butterflies will be scared off from trying to come too closely. Wow. But what is even more astonishing is the egg mimics that some of the um, passiflora show. Egg mimics? Egg mimics, yes. Um, and particularly weird. within one of the subgenera, um, Decaloba, you've got exoflora nectaries. Um, so exoflora nectaries are nectar secreting glands that are present anywhere else other than the flora structure. Mm. And you get them in passifloras in, in various parts. Uh, as I said, in Decalobi, get them in particular on the leaf lamina, and they can be in various rows, and they are sort of straight, but also never ever straight or in the same sort of uh, distance. They can be quite insignificant, but also sometimes, as I said, can be act mimics. And why do they look like act mimics is that we've got the butterfly, the Heliconius butterfly, is quite a vision of butterfly, and equally, it's our offsprings are quite cannibalistic so if you would already see eggs laid onto a plant you would think you would rather move on to the next plant where the chance of your own prodigy is much higher to actually develop other than being eaten alive by its own kind that's wild. <laughs> I know. I think if, if, if anyone wants to look it up, I think the best species to display that is Passiflora bundarai. It's got these really dark purple leaves and there's wonderful um, egg mimics, like proper yellow, going on two rows from up and down, from the leaf tips right to the base. So that is really one aspect. These um, egg mimics, before I actually move on and go into a bit more detail about what Exoflora nectaries are there for, is that these egg mimics can also be present on other parts. So I think mm. something that I, I missed out on, on mentioning earlier when it came down to morphology is uh, that um, on another distinguishing vegetative part are stipules. Mm. Stipules are leaf-like appendages um, that are located on either side of the petiole. And in some cases, they can be rather big and also can have mimics on the top. So the tip of the stipules is actually more round and it's yellow in colour, so they look exactly like eggs. So you get egg mimics on, on various vegetative parts. Um, so that's one aspect of trying to fool the butterfly. But equally, as I said, they're exoflora nectaries, and particularly on the lamina. And what these exoflora nectaries do is they attract other organisms, um, such as ants. And um, the ants will collect the nectar and be rewarded. But equally, what they do is they're being like little soldiers, um, which roam around the plant. And if they detect a, an egg uh, of a butterfly or even a caterpillar, um, they would uh, throw it off because obviously... Um, there is an awareness of their food source or nectar source being in danger from the uh, butterflies. Wow. Holy cow. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this all of this comes down to the fact that the plants definitely don't want to be eaten. But in terms of strategies to avoid that, you have chemical defenses. Yeah. When the butterflies overcame those, you have visual defenses in the terms of looking like a butterfly sometimes that's already there. Then you have egg mimics that say, no, 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 someone's already laid eggs on them. And then you have glands that attract ants, which then defend against any herbivores. <laughs> that is wild. <laughs> well, there's one last thing. I think one of the ones that I can remember, because there might be a few more. But the other thing is as well is that some uh, species, and the species that comes to mind right now is Passiflora telecifer, which is in fact named after a Heliconius butterfly, Heliconius telecifer. And they have got dark purple leaves and um, they have got patterns um, as well, white patterns. And it is said that actually the leaf looks a bit wilty. Because, again, the butterfly, in order to, to raise caterpillars or to have them surviving, and prodigy surviving, they want to lie their eggs on a healthy plant. So having a non-healthy plant makes them, again, move on to look actually for something that's a bit better suitable for their needs. What? <laughs> <laughs> but, again, it can be getting a bit more complex. Um, I hope... I, I, I hope um, I can uh, bring passiflores and the interactions across in the way it's happening. And if I don't make sense, I advise any listener to look things up. But it's it's a, it's a complexity of relationships of different organisms. There's a well-studied passiflora species, uh, which is known as uh, Passiflora pateri. 
And that species is a host plant to only two particular butterflies, um, Heliconius sapo in uh, Belize and there's Heliconius huetsuii in uh, Costa Rica. And Passiflora pateri belongs to a group of passion flowers that I'm particularly fond on, probably going to tell you about in a second. But just for now, so that particular plant uh, has uh, so-called episodic growth. So as I said earlier, mature leaves are rather unsuitable for the butterflies to consume or the, the butterfly larvae to consume. So really what they want is new growth. So in order to not constantly present the butterflies with material that can feed on, they have a so-called episodic growth. So it means only, and that depends on, on environmental conditions to certain aspects, is that they only shoot to certain times. And while the the plant has no suitable f- um, food source present, the Heliconus butterfly, which are also known to be one of the longest living pl- butterflies in existence, living up to six months, they can actually survive on uh, feeding on pollen of Cucubidaceae species, and particularly um, Psegurias, which are also neotropic vines. So while the passiflora has not produced suitable growth, the butterfly will feed on the pollen mm. until the passiflora starts to reshoot. And the butterflies will nevertheless detect that and will position their eggs on the meristem for their own advantage because the meristem expands quite drastically and quite quick. Again, they're trying mm. to, to, to develop that new growth into maturity as quick as possible. But equally, if the butterfly um, lays the eggs on, on, on small meristem, its eggs are getting distributed over the plant quite evenly, which works in its favour that they actually avoid cannibalism to a certain extent. Mm. So when growth is present uh, of the Passiflora species, they will stop feeding on the Absegura pollen, will lay their eggs and will actually then die like many other butterfly species. But again, they've got the ability of living up to six months. Wow. That is insane. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just, just to think of the struggle going on, I mean... In silence, essentially, uh, you know, between detecting and then having herbivores. But, you know, this plays out, like you said, over evolutionary time into this sort of arms race where you have an adaptation in the plant, followed by an adaptation in the butterfly, followed by an adaptation of the plant, which, again, lends to this insane diversity that you hinted at. <laughs> yeah, but also there's actually other, other, other insects as well that are part of, of diversity. I mentioned earlier that, um, and that's something that's, from what I'm aware of, is rather uncommon within uh, the flower and plant world, but they have got uh, three bracts that are suited just on, at the um, pedestal peduncle junction. And mm-hmm. in some species, they can be actually rather large, or also in others, they are widely dissected and very glandulous. And the reason being is that there is uh, some species, and it's actually species that are generally hummingbird pollinated, that are visited by little thieving bees. So bees, too small as being a suitable pollinator of that kind of group of plants, what they would do, because they can't access um, the the nectar base from the top, because that might be covered by some of the filaments that I mentioned earlier, part of the floral structure. So what they would do is normally drill their way in through the uh, from <laughs> from the side and making them an easy access. So um, little cheaters, <laughs> exactly little cheaters. Just go in in the side way instead of queuing. Um, <laughs> and um, so the plants have developed those bracts, which, as I mentioned earlier, with um, extrafloral nectaries as well. And again, those exoflora nectaries um, will attract ants, and the ants will make sure that uh, there's no thieving bees coming anytime closer to them. Jeez. And that's also the plant in, 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 in habitat. If, if it's a red flower plant, and such as um, Passiflora coccinia, you would not want to get too closely too quickly because you know there is about a million ants waiting somewhere <laughs> <laughs> to attack not only the thieving bees, but also oneself. <laughs> it sounds like you're uh, talking from experience there. <laughs> yes, I had that experience, and it wasn't a pleasant one. I can tell you that much. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, tropical ants are not a group to uh, fiddle with. Ah, jeez. So, you know, speaking of pollination, and you hinted at it before, you know, hummingbirds will play a role. I mean, 
those flowers are bizarre. The shape is just otherworldly sometimes, and that's really what attracts people to them, but the, all of that is centered around pollination. So what is it about the morphology? Is it, do they have very specialist pollinators a lot of times, or is it just like a size contingency, like you have to be this big to pollinate this plant? Uh, or is it just as diverse as the lineage itself? I think it's a, it's a combination, and as always with plants, it depends. But um, <laughs> in order to, to try to answer your question, uh, is there is uh, three main groups of pollinators, um, or there are groups of, of animals that are responsible for successful pollination. One being insects, and particularly bees, that can range from smaller bee species up to the bigger Ulema or Euglossum bees. And for that reason, and we've not really talked about, but I mentioned it earlier, the coronal filaments, the corona structure, which, as I said, the, the Spanish priest took as a resemblance of Christ's crown, is actually there to provide a landing platform um, for the insect. And oh, cool. the more filaments a species have, the more likely it is to be insect pollinated although there's exception to the rules. Huh. And generally speaking, it also comes down to the floral colour. So we've got species that are white, ranging to purple, bluish colours. So all of these would be insect pollinated. But then you've got also um, a, a group, and these are all the red-flowered species. Um, these are mainly bird-pollinated, mostly hummingbird-pollinated, because most species occur in uh, South America where hummingbirds are present. But also, equally, there's a few species that range as far as Australia, and there the uh, sunbird does replace the hummingbird with its action. Oh, cool. But these generally have a lesser coronal filaments and in certain um, Passiflora groupings, and particularly the uh, supersection taxonia, those corona filaments might be so reduced that they're only present as little knobs that are around the, the opening of the floral tube. And you've got various ways how they make it suitable to be um, hummingbird pollinated. So again, taxonias are known to have a relatively large floral tube, some even very specific to the hummingbird. So you've got a specific hummingbird, specific beak lens that is only able to pollinate that particular species, whereas others are um, less in regards to the hummingbird species. You also have a group, actually, that's also another uh, South American group, um, Passiflora mokuya, as part of that. Um, they have fused corona, um, so the corona itself forms a tube around the androgynophore, which lengthens the distance from the opening to the nectar base, and that again makes it suitable for the pollination of hummingbirds. As I said, there's a few species in, in Australia. Um, in fact, I think there's five species that are native to Australia. Three of those are, are quite closely related. And those three have, and I did not mention it earlier, so my apologies to, to listeners, but also some a structure that is really, or there's actually two structures that are very important within the floral morphology. Uh, one of them being tuperculum, which is a structure that arises from the inside of the hypanthium or floral dupe. And uh, the opposite to that is so the so-called lemon, which arises from the stalk of the androgynophore. And that is, is it's a lit, for mo in most cases, to prevent nectar from dropping out or also to make him accessible to a certain pollinator. Oh. Uh, within the um, Australian species, and that being Passiflora herbertiana, Passiflora cinnabarina, and Passiflora rantia, that operculum itself is raised, similarly looking to what I described from Passiflora mokuya, but sort of different. And again, it makes a di distance or it, it creates a distance between opening and the nectar base and again makes it suitable for bird pollination. That's crazy. And, and so these are the birds, but also there's uh, one last group which is of, of great importance for some species because species are very specific to the pollinators, although there's again exceptions to the rules. But the third group of pollinators are bats. What? <laughs> yes, uh, and mainly night flying ones. So there are, in fact, certain species of Passiflora, which if you want to see them flowering, you have to come, uh, well, you have to either see them in the wild at night or you have to be able to get into the glass houses at night and you have to see the flower opening then <laughs> and so there is a few species i don't know exactly how many but within again different groupings so the taxonias that i mentioned earlier it's in a high altitude andean distributed group of passifloras so they're mainly hummingbird pollinated but there's a few species which are also bat pollinated and one quite interesting one is uh, passiflora unipetala 
It's a rather recently described species. I think it was described only in the early 2000s and it's only described from one particular spot in Ecuador. And in, instead of having what's normally usual, a actinomorphic flower, it has a more zygomorphic arranged flower. And that also means that the anthers, instead of being radiant, um, pointing out into five ways, they're actually only suited on the top. So if you look at them, you, and I advise everyone at this stage to look that species up, but if you look at the um, picture of that particular plant, you will see that the anthers are all suited, on the, as I said, on the top, and it makes it a perfect fit for a bat to come in and to collect the pollen <laughs> with his forehead. And also they provide a lot of nectar, you know, and bats are really uh, keen on getting lots of nectar when they're pollinating. Wow, that is incredible. So you, you have these herbivore relationships driving a lot of the morphology of the whole plant. And then you have these oftentimes very specific interactions with the flowers and the pollinators that are driving, you know, the diversity of floral forms. It's making sense why this group is so diverse. <laughs> it is. And, you know, although they have got things in common, I think everyone will find that passiflora, the one that they will fall for, I guarantee you. There's, and I, I did not actually, I have not mentioned that, um, but there's around 575 species current that are recognized. And I looked it up since uh, the first description uh, of Linnaeus. Till now, we had about roughly two species described every year. So hopefully the future will bring that uh, a few more species being discovered wow. and described, increasing the diversity that we already know about this genus. That's remarkable. <laughs> that's, that's one heck of a discovery rate. It is indeed. And I hope, I personally hope, um, there will be many more to come and to be discovered. <laughs> yeah. And I, ho I hope you're one of the discoverers. I really do. <laughs> um, Hopefully one day. Uh, it, I wasn't. I wasn't that lucky to to find uh, a, a new one yet. But you never know. You're young. You got time. <laughs> Thank you. So hopefully one day we we'll see. Cool. So now most of the time, I think when people are hearing Passiflora, and as we're talking here, they're picturing like I am the vines. You know, a lot of Passifloras are vines, but that's not the complete picture for this family, right? There's there's a diversity of form and types, correct? Yes, there is a, a rather, well, despite the diversity we touched upon, but also, as I said, in, in grown habits, um, there's quite a diversity. So we have got the general known climbing vines and lianas. But there's also, and that is really what I tend to specialize in these days, is a group that includes scrambling wines, shrubs, but also trees or tree-like species. So we're talking about a number of nine species that really have entirely lost the ability to climb. So at none stage of their lives, uh, they do have fendrils that we normally associate as being rather typical for this genus. All of these species are included in a particular subgenus. We haven't really touched upon that. We talked about general hierarchy within uh, where Passiflora stands, but also Passiflora itself is subdivided into various groups. The big groups, um, subgenera, are there are five. We've got uh, subgenus Passiflora, which is the, the largest with over 200 species, uh, followed by uh, subgenus Decaloba that I mentioned earlier with showing a lot of extrafloral nectaries on the lamina. It's a bit smaller than Passiflora, but also just above um, 200 species recognized. Um, we have a two very rather small genera. Um, we've got the subgenus Tetrapathia, which is only, well, most of the under new classification in 2004, um, where this five genera system comes from, uh, actually four were only recognized back then. Since 2009, there was also a fifth one included by Krosnik and a few others, which includes species that are in fact dioecious. Um, so we've touched upon that most species are monoecious. So you've got both male and female parts present within one flower structure, whereas you've got plants where you actually got male and female plants. So there's three species, uh, one being from New Zealand, uh, Passiflora tetranda, then Passiflora arantioides from Papua New Guinea and Australia, and Passiflora coranda from Australia. So these three species being included in that rather odd subgenus. And equally, a, a, um, a small subgenus with about 13 species is the subgenus Devdenoides. It contains a rather primitive, or what people call a primitive set of, of species, which are rather odd species, so they don't really fit in in either of the other uh, four subgenera. Mm. And also what's quite distinguishing with them is that some of them have the ability 
or they're actually flowering on the tendril. Uh, a tendril, as I said quite early on within the conversation, is a modification of a, a stem and an inflorescence, again, is nothing else than a modification of a stem. So it's, it's sort of a double modification. So yeah. that's why you still find flower buds forming on tendrils within those species. Wow. But again, coming back to the, the subgenus that I'm focusing on, it's, it's, it's subgenus Astrophea. And there's just about 60 species uh, included within that. Um, they range from woody lianas to um, woody scrambling wines up to shrubby species or shrubs. In some species, and I mentioned Passiflora pteri earlier, uh, it depends on the maturity of the plant, if they have tendrils or don't have tendrils, and that sort of maturity is also dependent on the light levels. But again, there's this uh, group, um, and because you've got, again, various groupings or, or subgroupings within the subgenus Astrophea, there's a section Astrophea, and that includes the nine species of trees. Wow. And by trees, I mean trees. If people sometimes say to me, like, oh, right, there's a tree of Passiflora. No, people, I'm talking about, like, a 12-meter tall tree, Passiflora lindeniana, which is known to be the tallest of all known um, wow. Passiflora tree species. Um, it's recorded to grow up to 18 meters tall uh, with a basic girth of 80 centimeters. Holy cow. And that's quite something. I've been um, quite recently very lucky to witness some of those species myself, um, Passiflora cerecalpa. And the plant that I've seen uh, was at least standing 10 meters tall. And it, it was incredible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of those one of those life moments you're never ever ever gonna forget never ever in my life i will forget those on the zoo it's 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 quite impressive i mean i i grow these plants in key i'm very fortunate i mean i talked about that already in the past podcast and i'll touch upon it in earlier this podcast but i'm very fortunate to be able to work with this group of plants that i'm personally interested in but i can also incorporate it in my working life at q and q has got a fantastic collection of arboreal species but it's nothing in comparison uh, my well the plants that i'm looking after are standing maybe two meters tall which is rather small in comparison to what <laughs> one can experience in habitat yeah now that's that's incredible and i mean i had no idea and I, I think most casual listeners will have no concept of the fact that there's so much diversity in form within these different groupings uh you know it sounds like climbing or at least some sort of liana type uh, Passiflora was the ancestral form, or ancestral form, um, but these trees, like that's insane. You know where are they found? I mean, what kind of habitats produced tree-like Passifloras? So we've got the the most diversity within uh, Passiflora is is most certainly in in South America, in particularly in the neotropics. They occur as far south as Argentina, but they're also ranging across um, Central America right up to where you're sitting, up to uh, North America, where you've got a handful of species. And there is, surprisingly enough, and I've mentioned that there's a few Australian species, so there are actually a few species that are present in Australia or also Australasia. So I think southern China has got a few species and also Singapore there's a species recorded. Wow. Nevertheless, the diversity of, of species, as I said, is um, Southern America. All species, the tree-like species, occur or are recorded from three countries. They are recorded as far north as uh, Panama. Most of them occur in uh, in uh, Colombia, so all nine species are recorded for Colombia. Oh, cool. And there's one or two species that reach as far south as um, Ecuador. And, and some authors also include Peru, but I think there's a bit more work that needs to be done on, on that. The habitats, though, that they do tend to cover is temperate forests, sort of sub-Andean forests that they occur in. I think between sort of 1,000 to about 2,300 metres is the altitude range of most species. And depending what species, um, depending on the altitude range as well. And equally, I was very fortunate um, not too long ago to actually travel myself to, to Colombia and Colombians probably know, or people that have been to Colombia or researched Colombia, but um, the Andes are made of three major mountain ranges, the Western Andes, the Eastern Andes, and the Central Mountain Ranges. And the species, those two species occur on all of these three, 
But depending mm. on what species, they may occur on a different one. Wow. So you can distinguish species by the uh, distribution, but also within the altitude range. Um, huh. Saying that, though, um, so the, the, I think the, the highest altitude species is what I mentioned earlier, is Passiflora liniana that occurs actually, sorry, I missed out the country earlier, as far north as, uh, as um, Venezuela, so it occurs in the Andes there. Mm. And that's a species that is recorded just above 2000, where temperature sometimes can drop as low as zero degrees. Wow. But then equally, um, and I was very fortunate to, to see that species myself just a few years ago, is um, in the uh, Pacific lowland areas, you've got a species called Passiflora macrophylla. And that species is called macrophylla for no reason, because it is, in fact, the largest leaf within the whole genus. <laughs> the leaves, um, some leaves can be very minute within the genus, but those leaves can grow up to 90 centimeters long. What? 90 almost a meter long uh, about three foot it is absolutely wow. mind-blowing we have got a few plants i think the uh, largest leaf we had so far is just ranging 75 centimeters but it is absolutely insane seeing that leaf oh. but they're lowland species so they occur as low as sort of 100 to 200 meters uh, and equally, on the other side of the Andes, in the in Amazonian ranges, you've got uh, a tree called Putumanensis. Uh, it's sort of the equivalent to Passiflora macrophylla on the Pacific coast, but it occurs on, uh, on the Amazonian lowlands. That's crazy. So this large leaf species likes the warm, hot kind of. That's why it can produce such large leaves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It also it, it's an understory tree, so it, it's a rather weak tree. It doesn't. Well, it's, I've never seen myself in that sort of dimension, but it's recorded to four to five meters tall. Our plants don't ever grow taller than a meter fifty. But also, what's quite interesting, they tend to die back quite a lot. You know, I talked about co-evolution with the butterflies and. They, those tree passifloras are particularly close with their butterfly group. So, in fact, uh, certain butterfly species are monophagous, so they only feed on that, on that particular passiflora. Wow. So, um, the passiflora, in order to bring up a lot of energy to bounce back when it goes dormant, sort of has got some dieback and then it grows back. So, they don't really, they grow bigger and then they, they reduce in size. Uh, so, that's probably what i'm trying to say <laughs> yeah that's incredible i'm i'm blown away and i just it's so refreshing to kind of get a new take on a on a group that is you know relatively familiar to most but uh you know to have someone such as yourself that's so passionate about it but it sounds like you know you've done a lot of traveling to see these species in situ so to speak um you know what's what's been the nature is it mostly just for fun or do you get to like do it for work too um, <laughs> well, seeing passiflora is always fun <laughs> for me, anyways. But it, it work-related in some cases. It, it depends. Well, as we discussed um, a while back, but I'm very, very fortunate that I can work in an occupation where I can actually incorporate my my life passions as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first ever opportunity to go overseas and to study passiflora in the wild was when I was still a Q student and I had this wonderful, unique opportunity to uh, go out with John Wenderplank and all of those people that are listening now and have ever heard of a passiflora, they would have heard about John Wenderplank. He is the uh, national collection holder in the UK and he is he, he wrote one of the very first monographs or uh, on the on the group of plants. In fact, the first book I've ever read in English because it was only available in English was his book. <laughs> and um, he... <laughs> uh. <laughs> and um, he goes out um, to see passiflores in the wild to study them and he planned a trip out to French Guiana so I was um, very fortunate to join the little group of people that went down there I have to say that was also I, I suppose a, it was a, a great experience for me to, to see the plant that I've been growing for a while in habitat and getting more a bit of an understanding what they need in cultivation but equally getting a bit more of an understanding of how they interact with the environment and how that mm. also Im impacts upon them within cultivation those sort of natural interactions with other organisms right because th that shapes the plants <laughs> yes absolutely as i said there's so many things um you know leaf shapes episodic growth whatever comes with the plants because of those uh, organisms that they're interacting with but equally it was um 
a great opportunity to go out with experts and such as John van der Plank and to learn from them and how they study in those group of plants and have broaching things. But um, also, this is where I actually got to see one of the first tree-like, well, I say tree-like, uh, passion flower because it wasn't, in fact, a tree, the first one that I ever got to see in the wild, but it was <laughs> Passiflora amoena. Uh, it's part of the subgenus um, Astrophia, and it's uh, it, within a, a small group called Botryastrophia, and they're red-flowered species, so they're also having pollinated. They're mainly woody lianas, so when you go into the wild, you only see a bare stem, and most of the foliage would be on top of the canopy. Mm-hmm. And um, most of these species are coliflorous, so they're flowering from the stem. And I oh, remember nice. uh, we had this; we had to have make this stop because it was starting to. Oh, we, we found a plant, or we thought it was an interesting plant, and we stopped. And all of a sudden, this um, tropical uh, rain came down upon us, and we could do nothing else than just finding shelter within the forest. So all of us sort of got sheltered under big like alocasia leaves and all of that, and trying to wait until the rain was going. <laughs> over and then all of a sudden I turned around and found this flower but <laughs> we got so excited about that Jeez. and unfortunately it was only buds but it was close enough um, to where we were staying at the time that we were able to come back two days later and it was open and I have to say I don't know what happened with my, my human body but I was so happy I was so excited like my heart was just jumping <laughs> and uh, that uh, was the ever first time when I saw a species um, everyone who doesn't know what it looks like look up Passiflora moena and absolutely beautiful little species um pinkish yeah. flowers but yeah that is absolutely fantastic <laughs> I love that I love that story just because I think anyone that's really into a group of plants and you know you read about them you look them up you're constantly researching them but then to finally see it in the wild it's just kind of like you said your heart you're like what's happening to me I have to sit down <laughs> I know I know and you yeah. know what the likeness did you see those even if you have any sort of records of where they're supposed to occur it's it's really difficult difficult to find them as I said uh, <laughs> like I mean again um, going back to, to to my last trip but being in Colombia I managed to see three different species and that was only thanks to uh, some really incredible and lovely people that I met or well I met and I met them finally in Colombia and they roughly knew where the plants were and so we could go in an area where we sort of knew that we should find the plants that we're looking for but either way, you've got the lianas. And again, we, we were looking out for a species called Passiflora sicuriglata, which is a close relative to Passiflora amoena that I've just mentioned. And this time, actually, the rain was even worse, like what I experienced um, in 2011 in, in French Guiana. And everything got so wet and soaked all our equipment to a point where I thought, like, really, do I want to see that passiflora? But yes, of course, I wanted to see that passiflora. Um, so we, we waited it out a while. We always got stuck with the car because it was sort of the first stop that we we're looking at for that species. But actually, we made it to the second stop and we were rewarded with a large quantity of our of um, plants for that particular species unfortunately only in buds but mm. you know you don't complain no. a i found the species and secondly i found some buds and i was uh, really excited to to dissect those and look into it too. flower structure as i said um flower structure is very important and um sometimes rather species specific yeah or oh, in, in in general for taxonomy of the plant very important um, right yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, and, and and to add to the fact that, you know, your your profession is growing these plants, and I really like the fact that you emphasize this idea of how much going out into the wild and seeing these plants behaving as they do in the wild informs what you then go back to do at the garden. You know, I, I, I don't know if you could be a good plant grower without having an understanding of what these species are doing in the wild, right? Yeah, I think it's very complicated. I have to say, people always ask me, why do you like the trees? And I don't have a particular answer for that. I think because they're the trees, um, but also one thing that comes with them is that they're super difficult or always been regarded as being super difficult to cultivate. So the general interest of cultivating those plants in the first place, and particularly in initially when people started to bring them into cultivation, because Lepidopterists needed them as a food source. As I said, you've got Passiflora pateri. You've got two particular species of butterflies that feed on that species. If you, as a Lepidopterist, want to raise Passif- um, sorry, um, Heliconia sapo or Hevitui, you need to have Passiflora pateri 
or a close related species, Passiflora um, tina, because that's the only plant they're feeding on. So people then are starting to bring those plants in cultivation. But for many reasons, um, they were, from what I understand, quite difficult to maintain over uh, over various years, because in particularly with the tempered species, you have to consider dormancies. And also what seemed to be quite difficult is the reproduction. Not so much from seed, but um, seed are difficult to obtain, and particularly from a cultivated plant, and particularly if you only have one clone, because they're self-incompatible. So you rely on, on clonals or vegetative um, propagation. And a, a lot of these species, um, well, propagation trials or um, attempts really led to zero success. And that's one of the things that, that I think was I was quite interested in is trying to figure out why no one had success and to, to a big extent what I think is the reason for that is A, that you have all this in natural interactions and as I said this episodic growth that comes with them that you have to consider so a certain seasonality uh, but equally one of the problems I think is that we're talking about the tree um, we're talking not about a, a, a vine, so you should probably, if you're in the temperate regions and you know how to propagate a oak, I think you may be more successful with the techniques there than trying to propagate a green, you know, herbaceous like climber. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, I'm, 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 it's like every little discovery um, about this genus. Um, you know, it's it's you never learn out. I think it's one of the things where I certainly never get bored in life, and I just get amazed by every fact more that I'm learning about it. Because you, I know we touched upon Heliconius butterflies, but there's uh, certain day flying moths of the genus Gita that are neotropical as well, and they mimic the butterflies. And in oh, fact, geez. there are another only species that can only feed on the Passiflorus or tree Passiflorus. So That's it's bizarre. And not even that. And if you, I don't want to go off plants too much, but I really want to bring other components uh, or you know sure. other other organisms that these plants interact with. Is um, what I also found out whilst um, looking at those plants. There is little flea beetles, and I think the genus is called Bedelia. So I'm not entomologist, so any entomological errors I've done right now, I'm really apologising. But um, those little flea beetles are rather minute. I think they're about less than five millimeters in diameter, and again, they're, they're actually an insect and cope with the toxin within the plant. And they're always yellow and orange. And I read somewhere that a theory behind that is that they're also agnomics. So they're actually pretending to be eggs of Heliconius butterflies on a passiflora. So they can feed purely on the passiflora. So the butterfly moves on and looks after another one. What? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. That is incredible. <laughs> I never, I mean, it, it's a. And it like it's like no plant operates in a vacuum, and this is just shining proof of that. Is just how much is going on, and it's all centered around this family of plants. That is incredible. And the flea beetles of themselves are just fascinating organisms. I had so much fun photographing various ones in the tropics, but wow! I mean, that's like a mimic of a mimic of a system. It's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I think it gets so complicated, and also like talking about it, and kind of apologizing to your listeners. It's like the the. Sometimes I find the natural interaction so complex and to, I'm, I'm probably not a good person to, to describe and display that, but it's sometimes so unique how things are interact and how one response affects another one and how it all kind of creates a bigger picture that it's sort of complicated to be understood, but it kind of makes sense. If that makes sense. But I can see why this becomes, yeah, no, it does. <laughs> and I can see why this becomes such a passion because if you enjoy those kinds of systems where, you know, this the center of it is this plant, but then all of the relationships that come off of it, it's understandable why, you know, your passion and your thorough understanding of this is so complete. But again, it also makes sense as to why there's so much unknown going on within this group that you could, your entire lifetime could be spent just having your mind blown every year as new stuff. <laughs> you discover new things, more people, you know, publishing more papers. It's, it's, incredible and i'm i think you've done a really good picture as to painting uh why you've fallen in love with this this group and what 
you know, what it really means and why it's so special to you, but why it's so unique to the natural world. It's just phenomenal. And uh, it's almost a shame that most people only see them as these <laughs> little garden specimens hanging out in nurseries. And it's not even like you have to go to some faraway jungle to appreciate them. I mean, like you said, I was just down in southern Illinois for the eclipse, and yep. lo and behold, Passiflora ludia, <laughs> one of the smallest and most temperate species hanging out. And it's just, there's something for everyone here. Yeah, it is. That, that's, I think that comes with the diversity of, of that genus. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you say um, in defense of plants, they had to cure um, plant blindness. Um, I'm, I'm taking a smaller step in life and I'm, I'm there to cure uh, passive floor blindness. Um, <laughs> so hopefully um, uh, some people out there, they just get inspired by some of the facts because they're, it needs more people that bring a bit more light into, into researching this rather unique genus of plants. And in fact, I mean, I'm, I'm picking up passiflorus, but let's face it, every plant is, is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. But I mean, that's why I love finding these little niches where people have just kind of picked one and, and run with it, like you have here. But I know, I think you've given us a nice thorough introduction to this group, but... You know, if we care to be a little bit more personal to your life, like we said, we've touched on the fact that you've traveled to see them. You've had numerous occasions to experience different forms and different groups in the wild. Um, other than the ones you've told us about, what are some highlights? I mean, have you had moments where you've just been, you know, like you said, your heart goes or species that uh, have surprised you or just a favorite encounter in general? Yeah, I mean, the, despite the, the the two that I sort of mentioned, and uh, I mean, that was really the most significant one because it just made made my human body do things that I would not expected it to do from seeing a, a plant. But equally, I've been, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm working in queue and I I always seem to surround myself with um, very supportive people. And uh, when I was a student um, about, well, it's been a long time ago now. <laughs> I've been a student eight years ago. Um, so when I was a student in the, in the first year, I ran, as I said, into Carlos and he was always very supportive. But also there was some plants there which came in as uh, Passiflora sericarpa at the time. And we grow them and that's as said, an aspect of, of knowing where they, things come from because sericarpa is sort of a temperate plant, but it can cope with the warmer temperatures and we kept it too warm so you know together we we raised the plants from a small stage up to five years later into flowering stage and it is it is an absolutely beautiful species it turned out to not be sericarpa that was quite uh, clear after a short while because it's distinct different but because the other species of trees look fairly similar so all of them really have um are trees, you know, they're, they're slightly different in shape, but not many people are familiar with that. But floral-wise, um, they're all white with yellow corona, so they're very similar. And I thought it was Passiflora arborea, which in fact is um, the, the the first species of arborea species that was described in 1806 by Bonblanc, who went together with Humboldt to um, Colombia, or was then known as New Granada still. And uh, so they described Passiflora arborea. So uh, describing things, well, looking at the description and looking at my plants, I was fairly convinced that it was arborea. But then <laughs> I traveled to Colombia. <laughs> and uh, I, as I said, I met some incredible people over there that do some fantastic research on Passifloras and also in the particular subgenus. And so I went out um, to see Passiflora imaginata. And imaginata is, in fact, the species that was just shortly described after Arborea in the very same publication as um, Arborea itself, so by Montblanc. Nevertheless, Arborea being regarded as the first one. And I looked at it, and although we were a bit early in the season, I think about two, two, three weeks later, I could have seen plants much more in bloom, many more open. Because the problem is that with the epigrotic growth that I described earlier, yeah, and because they only they only produce flower buds on new growth, that only occurs when new growth or new flushes of growth have only been present. So you have to be there at the right time, and mm. then they call into some what well, passiflora people call it orgy flowered, but it. They refer to it as the all blooms um, opening up over the course of just one or two weeks in masses in order to attract their pollinators. Wow. So for that aspect, I was there just in the beginning, but I got to see two open flowers of Passiflora imaginata. 
And I looked at it and I was like, yeah, no, that, that's, that's exactly what I got in <laughs> queue. That's exactly it. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> um, so uh, it was really special. And also um, really big trees. It looked a bit like a poplar I found from, from sort of the overall shape appearance. Weird. But it, they were huge, up to eight meters tall. And in a very disturbed area, actually, in an Amazing. old coffee plantation where we found them. Unfortunately, there wasn't much regeneration happening because what happens these days is there's, speaking of interaction with environments, but there's um, small flies and they're actually, I think, of Colombian natives uh, that feed on seed arrows. Again, many things I haven't really mentioned yet, but a seed arrow is, covers the seed and it actually has got um, the passion fruit juice. I should have probably said right in the beginning that what I'm talking about is passion fruit. So we produce the juice of Passiflora edulis or some other species as well who, of those. I've been fortunate to try those. But that seed arrow generally prevents um, germination of the seed within the fruit. But there's a particular species of fly that feeds on these arrows. So unfortunately, they don't drill themselves into the immature fruits and they feed on the arrows making it possible for the seed to mature. So a lot of the times, and that's why many of these species become more and more threatened, and due to a few other factors, become threatened in habitat. Um, and unfortunately also there wasn't really much um, regeneration happening. But I, w I was very um, lucky to, to run into the person that looked after the area, and they were actually realising that there wasn't any regeneration happening lately. Um, so they collected any seeds they could, and they were actually sowing them in a, in a secure space and under control condition in order to grow them onto a certain stage, and then... Uh, plant them out oh, um, so that always happening as well out there which is very important uh, as I said there's a lot of habitat yeah. um, destruction happening where those plants occur um, ever so often because they're big trees they use this as um, firewood or timber to, for buildings but one one um, I think fortunate aspect is there's many species I think you can they're easily coppiced so they have got the ability even being cut mm -hmm down right to the stem to, to bounce back and actually produce new growth which I've seen before and it's also known That's good. from Passiflora liniana that I mentioned earlier yeah. Wow, so it's important that people are paying attention to this and working towards it, um, you know, and moving forward with you and your work in this group and you know as you move up the ranks uh, what's on the horizons for you with, with Passiflora AC? Uh, what's on the horizon? I think I'm, I'm just going to continue what I have been doing for a while and this is trying to <laughs> to um, absorb more information, um, to learn more about this particular group of plants and hopefully contribute to the um, general understanding of those and any f future work that's needed of those. <laughs> Fantastic. The world <laughs> is your oyster and passiflores are just part of it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very fortunate. Yeah, I can say my fair fortune. I don't know, a few people might think I'm crazy to listening right now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but they should all empathize with it. Again, I'm not quite sure if I make justice of describing them on a podcast because that's one of the things I, I uh, thought about. It's like, how can you describe such a beautiful plant visually? Exactly. So please, anyone who, who doesn't know what I'm talking about or didn't understand what I was talking about, please look them up because I'll tell you one thing, you will regret it. <laughs> <laughs> No, and I think this, again, you, it's impossible. We could have a whole podcast probably <laughs> devoted to this group, but I think uh, this was a great thorough introduction, and you know, just to kind of set that spark that there's so much more to learn than just, ooh, pretty flower kind of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we've done, we've done some justice to this group, and I thank you. But, uh, you know, again, it's great that you're fortunate, but you also, you're hardworking and you deserve it. So keep kicking butt. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll try. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, again, if people want to find out more about you, how do you recommend them reaching out? Well, I think probably best is to, to try it over Twitter. My Twitter account is at PassiflorTree. That's how you find me. Just if you want to send me a private message and I can pass you on my, my email address as well, then that's probably the easiest way. Fantastic. I will uh, post that along with the link to your last episode. Brilliant. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> well, Rebecca, this has been a pleasure. I thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, again, you're welcome back whenever something new comes out. <laughs> thank you very much, Matt. It's been uh, a real pleasure for me to be asked to... Uh, join your podcast again i think i said it before and i happily repeat it i'm a big fan of your podcast and all your work um so thank you keep it up and cure that plant blindness in the world <laughs> well i appreciate it and uh thank you for helping with that so have a great day thank you very much goodbye cheers ah man i love that 
You can just hear the passion coming through in her voice. Haha, <laughs> pun intended. Rebecca is fantastic. Such a great mind on that person, and she's doing incredible work. Perhaps someday soon we can get over to Q and uh, hang out in person, and she can teach me a thing or two about plant propagation. One can only hope. All right, everyone, I thank you for listening. Again, youtube.com slash plants. Head on over there and hit subscribe. We've got our Appalachian video coming out on October 20th. It's a longer style video than the ones we've been putting out, and we're really excited to share it with you. Also, patreon.com slash plants. Consider supporting this podcast. Indefensiveplants.com slash shop. Consider picking up a sticker. 50% of every purchase goes to orchid conservation efforts here in North America, so it's for a good cause. Other than that, I hope you all have a fun and fantastic week. Get out there, enjoy fall, or if you're in the Southern Hemisphere listening to this, get out there and enjoy spring. I will talk to you next week. This is Matt, your host, signing out. Adios, everyone.